One other thing I want to share before we get in God's Word this morning is, uh, some of you are well aware, but we have an Hispanic ministry on our church campus that meets every uh, Lord's Day, and, and they're vitally involved and active in a variety of different ways throughout the week as well. And as we've opened up the community behind us, uh, the gate, they meet some children every Sunday and bring them into the, the church, and then afterwards they get to meet their parents afterwards. And they've started a ministry every other uh, Sunday is they go into the park and they meet with 25 children and put on kind of a mini kind of a Sunday school program with them. And so uh, this community that we have uh, faithfully uh, passed out invitations for probably 10 years now is starting to bear some fruit as we now have an Hispanic ministry that's very active in, in reaching out and not only getting to know the kids but the, the parents as well. And they're going to be involved in our Vacation Bible School um, this uh, next week not this week but the week afterwards and we're excited about that and also the japan <coughs> excuse me the japanese church that meets uh, in the afternoon on sundays and they're involved with us on the workday on sunday on saturday yesterday and and again are just reaching out to people and it's it's a great opportunity to be a part of a of a family that not only uh, speaks to the the native tongue of this nation which would be english but also other people that have various languages in fact just met with someone whose uh, language uh, native tongue is Farsi, and she's interested in baptism uh, through the ministry of God's church here and, and seeing the love of Christ and wanting to identify fully with being a follower of Jesus Christ. So as we do life together, ministry together, people are seeing the love of Christ in, in our fellowship and are attracted to, to know him in a personal way. Well, this morning uh, we have opportunity to again get back in, uh, into God's word as we look at what God has planned for the future. Uh, but before we look at that, let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the privilege of being in your word. And we pray as we look into it that you might really speak into our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as you look at uh, this last book, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the, the last book of the books, the 66 books. The 66th one is the book of Revelation. And as you think about this, it's somewhat, somewhat interesting in that um, throughout the week, we on Wednesday nights at 6.30, uh, we're doing a series on unlocking the mysteries of genesis which looks at what god has said about the beginning and it's always good to, to know what happens in the beginning and then he also gives us what happens in the end and as we think about god's people i guess you could put that uh that that final line on and they happily lived ever after uh, but that's gonna be true of god's people but it's not necessarily gonna be true of all those who have rejected uh, his message for people to turn to him and, and God wants us to know how it all starts, and he wants us to know how it all ends. And as we think about the book of Genesis, which is really the book of beginnings, begins with God saying everything came into existence through his hand. And then it speaks very soon in the, in the lifeline of, of the people he has made that we messed it up. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 3, as there is the fall of man, as we rebel against him through our own selfish desires and turn to listen to someone else rather than him. And then basically from Genesis chapter 3 to the book of Revelation, you have this period of time in which God, who started all of creation, we messed it up with the fall, and then between those chapters up to the book of Revelation, you have his plan of redemption, which is his buying back that which he has made. And you see that in a variety of different ways as God draws people to himself and he speaks into the lives of people to convince them of who he is and what his plan is for mankind's life. Uh, lives. And, and so as we think about that, uh, the book of Revelation is that time in which we see God fulfilling his eternal purposes for all that he has made. And the book of Revelation, which the word 
simply means to unveil, unveils who is coming and what is coming. Who is coming is Jesus, and particularly in the first chapter of Revelation, we see Jesus coming in his power. And as we looked at last week, just reviewing chapters 2 and 3 is unveiling God's message, messages to the churches back then and now as his call for us to live out what we believe. And then in chapters 4 through 22, we see the final details of what is to come. Now, with that as a mouthful, you say, well, what are you supposed to get out of that? And we talked about it last week. If you were to kind of summarize, when you, when you read Revelation, uh, which is looking into the future, and if we're looking into the future, and if you kind of see it as I see it, God's people will already be brought up into the presence of God through the rapture of the church. Why do we need to be talking about what's going to happen to other people? Well, in some ways, we need to be a little sober about ourselves. It's quite possible what we profess is not what we possess. We might know about Jesus, but do we really know him? And this is a warning to make your faith sure. Uh, but also, it is a, it's, a, it's a challenge for us to bring as many people with us to know him and discover life now in relationship with Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation, as well as really everything in God's word, is, is really a challenge to come in to be comforted and to be challenged. Because you see, as, as we read about God's plan, it comforts us in that we know that he's got everything under his control and it's going to be ultimately under his control in the future. But it's challenging because God wants us to be a part of that and realize that he has called us to represent him and to represent him well. Another question you can ask yourself, what are you supposed to do when you come to church? Well, you could say the same thing. You've got to come to be comforted and challenged. But another way to say it, you, you come to be helped and then be a helper. I like that passage in Hebrews chapter 10, which says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, this, is a, this passage, is a, you could easily make it a message just in itself, but it, it really speaks that if, if you come to church with the right perspective and you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, you come to say, I want to hold on to what I believe even more so because of my time spent here. I, I'm not just being involved in a religious activity. I'm coming here to be helped to hold on to what I believe is true. And what is true is that what God promises, he will bring to pass. And so we come here to be helped. But not only do you come to be helped, but we come to, to help others. Because then it goes on in verse 24, And let us consider how to stimulate one, one another to love and good deeds. If you have an Old King James, some of you might have Old King James version, it says to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And I don't know how else you want to say it. Provoking sounds kind of like pushy, doesn't it? Okay. Sometimes we ought to push, be pushy with each other, kind of push each, on, each other on to, to be more faithful in, in, in the things God wants us to do. And then not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that we are called to be a people who receive help and then give that help to others. That, that's, that's what the church is all about. Be encouraged so you can be encouraging to others. Have you ever gone into a, a, um, a store or a, whether it be a... a department store which has all kinds of things you want to purchase and you can't find the aisle you need to find and you're looking for someone to give you some what help and, and this is a place where god wants us to get help and then give help to others but as we look at that then we look at the book of revelation as a place where god 
helps us to understand what is to come so that we might recognize if we have been helped, then we can get that message out that will help others. We have been comforted because God has dealt with our deepest need, and now we're challenged to help other people to receive comfort as well. Well, this morning what we're going to do in Revelation chapter 11 is look at more details about what is to come. But taking just a, 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 a quick step back, and the temptation is always to review just about everything we've already said to make sure you're kind of getting the big picture. Looking back at chapter 10, we, we see what happens often in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, probably as much as any other book, where God speaks in pictures as much as he does in words. Uh, one time when I preached this message, I tried to, I mean, this series, I, I put all kinds of graphics on the, on, the, on the screen to try to kind of picture some kind of thing that you, you saw here. But I, I find most people's imaginations are better than the ones I put on the screen, so you have to imagine it yourself. In, in chapter 10, what John experiences is a kind of a, a pause in the midst of all the details about the judgments that are to come. And he says, I, I want to give you a picture of this angel. Now, an angel is a transliterated word from the original language to our language. In the Greek, the word for angel is angelos. If you were to translate it, it would be messenger. And it says of John that he saw an, a messenger, a strong messenger, uh, with a rainbow-looking halo around his head, and his face shone like he had met with God. And, and so the clear message was, as, as God gives John a pause between the specific judgments that are about to come, continue to come, he says, the strong angel, representative of God, put, put one leg and foot on the land, another foot and leg on the sea. And what he did is, I'm marking off that God is making claim to this planet that he created and has allowed people the freedom and the evil one to influence it in ways that were not according to his plan. And so it's saying, as we think about the future, we need to recognize that the things that we read about in the paper, whether it being four Marines and a Navy sailor being murdered by an individual this past week, or people harvesting body parts for profit within the womb of women, uh, is that there's coming a time when all that will be done with. Because God is going to take back everything that was given to the evil one in this world. And again, we need to understand that God is in control, but he has allowed a lot of things to happen. And he describes the evil one, the Satan, the devil, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, as the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says he is the prince of the power of the air. And then in John, three times in John, he says he is the ruler of this world. So Satan has a lot of influence in the things that happen on this planet. But God's going to send back an angel to lay claim to this land, which pictures God taking back everything under his control, direct control. Then he also gives them a book at the end of chapter 10, and he says, this book I want you to eat, John. And you think about, what? And again, it was symbolic of what was to be the message that was to get, be given out by John and every other representative of Jesus Christ, a message that would be sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach. And it's really saying the gospel is both good news and bad news at the same time. It's good news for those who respond to it in faith, and it's bad news for those who reject it. 
And everyone really has that choice to say whether, do you want God's way or your way? And if you do God's way, then you get God's blessing. If you go your way, you'll get God's judgment. And then all of a sudden we encounter chapter 11, and again God speaks in pictures. And so I want you to try to picture this, and we'll try to draw some simple points this morning in which we'll see that God's plan will come to pass. And see, we live in this era from the time that Jesus came the first time and whenever he's coming the second time, in which we wonder, well, when is that going to happen? And, and no one should ever try to communicate that they know when it's going to happen because God says that it's not your responsibility to know when, you're just to be prepared. God's plan will come to pass, and this is how it's going to come to pass. God will allow evil to reign, his wrath will be poured out, and the message will be disseminated around the world, and people have opportunity to respond, but then the end will come. Well, let's look at it this morning in terms of some of the details. And this is, this morning, in many ways, this is a, this is not a to-do list for you to, to go home and do. It's a, a, a challenge for all of us and a comfort for all of us to know these things about God so that we might be more settled in Him. And the more we're settled in Him and, and confident of His, of His involvement not only in our lives but in, in the entire universe, then we can, we can represent Him so much better because our faith can become strong and be convinced that He truly has a plan that will come to pass. What are some things you need to know this morning about what is to come? Number one, know that God will measure His temple and His people as His own. And you're thinking, well, where do you get that and how is that illustrated in this book called the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his... I'm in Romans. All right, should I turn to Revelation? All right. That didn't look right. All right. Revela yeah, last book. Who said that earlier in the service, right? Revelation 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And, and sometimes when you read in the book of Revelation, you read phrases like this, you go, what, what's the point here? I mean, you just give me a, a, a job to do, and is there some significance to it? And, and he's looking about what is going to be around in the future, because uh, this is something that, that God has planned that will be around when these end times start to happen. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take a measuring stick. Didn't have a tape measure. He says, I want you to grab something that will, will map out what is here. And what is mapped out of here is the temple. And what is the temple? It's the place where God's people come to worship and where God manifests himself in the most personal way. And, and, and particularly, probably the temple of God here was that place of the altar of God, the Holy of Holies, where, where God's um, uh, presence is experienced in its depth. And he says, measure the temple of God and the altar and also and those who worship in it. Now, what's the point here? And I've implied it in my, my point this morning about what you ought to know, is that when you measure something, often you want the, maybe the details of what you purchase or what you're trying to uh, use or what you're trying to build, but that's not what's here. What is here is it's a, it's a measuring of that which is yours. And, and God is doing, uh, John is doing this for God to, to to say this is, this is God circling the wagons and say everything within this circle is mine. 
And I want you to block that off and to measure it. We know that he's not talking about building certain dimensions because there's no dimensions here. And if you were at your home, if you, if you own a home and you, you have a property line like mine, which there are no fences and there are, it's hard to know where your property begins and where the, your neighbor's property ends and what things you can you know, put there, you have to go to the plans and then you'd have to measure, okay, this, this is where my property line is, this is mine, and on the other side is my neighbor's line. Or if you remember when you were... If you had more than one child in your, in your car or if you were one of those children in a car and, and you have that experience, he's touching me. She's touching me, right? And so there's a line drawn in the back seat and said, look, it, don't get across that line because this is my space and that's your space. And we just drew that line, right? And it's measuring off what is yours. I just see Ada telling that to Brian right now over here. Said, get away from me, Brian. This is my... No, it is that... You know, is you, <laughs> and so that's what he's doing here. He's, he's measuring off what is his, and even more importantly, whose is his. And, and that's always, that, that's been done in the past as well. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you have a similar experience. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there's a man with a measuring line in his hand. And so I said, well, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. Now, if that's all that was said, there's kind of curiosity. I want to know how big our city is. But in Zechariah 2, 5, this is a few verses later, it says, For I declare, says the Lord, will be, there will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. And that's simply in a poetic way saying, look, at, we're measuring Jerusalem. Say, this is my city, and I will be the glory of it. I will be the protective hand. And really, that's, that's what God does for his people now and in the future. And then during this period of time, we've already seen where there's so much destruction around the world. The wrath of God is being poured out. But in the midst of that, God measures his people. And he says, these are mine. You know, there's going to come a time in which there will be people who, who profess that they know the, the one and only Savior and Lord. And, and Jesus, probably the saddest words in all the Bible is found in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. But, but, the, but the good news, and that's the challenging word, but the comforting words is those who know God truly, God has that measured. And he's know, he knows you're one of his children. I really believe that the, the Bible has five temples described for us. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, the Tribulation temple, the Millennium te uh, temple, all have different sizes there. But they're basically a demonstration. This is the place where God manifests himself to his people to know that he is their God and they are his people. So that is what is to come. God is measuring a, the place of worship so that we might know we're his. Secondly, Know that God will reject those who choose to rebel and not worship him. And here's the sobering words. Just, and again, a very simple version, verse 2. He says, leave out the cord, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. And so if we understand the first verse right, that it's measuring is a, is, a, is a symbol of ownership and possession and relationship, this is saying the exact opposite. Those on the outer court don't measure it because I'm not going to be centered around it in its glory, as in Zerubbabel's day, and, and to recognize that they are not part of my eternal plan of blessing for 
those who really are part of my family. And he said, they'll, they'll have their time during this time, but it will be a temporary time. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There will be a time during the, the seven years where it looks like the, the bad guys are winning. You know, it used to be, us olden people here, you know, you could always watch a movie and you know the good guys would always win in the end. Now, of course, Hollywood's kind of changed that. You, you watch a movie and they go, I don't know who's going to win in this. Some, sometimes the bad guys win and sometimes, you know, the good guys win. And, and there's going to be a time during the period of, of tribulation where it looks like the, the bad guys are winning. He said they're, they're treading over the, the city of Jerusalem. But it's only going to be a period of time, 42 months. And we'll see a little bit later, 1,260 days or time, times, and, and a half, three and a half years in which their line and, and time of power will be done. And, and, and the sobering thing here is to recognize that, that those who reject what they know, there is no hope for them. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. But jumping down to verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and this is just pictured in two little verses in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. One, God measures the temple and his people, those who are worshiping. And God refuses to have John measure those who are on the outer court because they are not his. They're treading in power and destruction for the enemy, and they are not part of God's family. And then the larger section in this chapter gives us the details of, of God using two particular people. I, I, I had to plan, plan this message to spend all my time in just these verses here, and then I thought well, I'd never get through the rest of it, so I kind of had to shrink it down a little bit. But you know, it's amazing how God um, rarely uses just one person. You know, often he, he, he wants at least two or three or four. That we're always better when we're together with somebody. I mean, even and sometimes it's because he just knows who we are. And we, we know we get kind of, we get bothered when we're all alone. Like, you know, Moses, you know, God actually called him to do it himself. And Moses said no. And so Moses was given who? Aaron. In the very beginning, Adam started off and, and uh, he was supposed to give kind of dominion over the world, and, and uh, God already knew this, but you know, Adam finally figured out you know, it's not good for man to be what? Alone. And so he had Adam and Eve. And then, and then you look throughout all of uh, God's world. You, know, you have Elijah, and then he got who? Elisha. And even David, he had even a, kind of a strange friend. He had Jonathan. And, and you look at, uh, even within the Godhead, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have the, the Trinitarian God. Is there not alone? You, you, you look in... Uh, even in some of the greatest books in the Bible, you have in the book known for, you know, Ruth, but Ruth had who? Naomi. And then Ruth had Boaz. And, and you look at the disciples. He didn't just call one. He called, he called 12. And you can even see him grouping many times. You have Peter, James, and John. And you have, you have people in relationship. You have the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, I don't know what pictures in your mind. I'm preaching the sermon. I didn't preach the first service. Okay, you know, Paul... Paul had Barnabas, Paul had Silas. You don't, you don't rarely see Paul all alone. And, and what you have is God calls out two people to be 
spokesman to be his representatives. And, and, I, and I put this one in your outline. Know, you know that God you know, measures his people and knows whose are his. That's the temple and worshiping. Know that God will be, does not measure those who aren't his, and they will be outside of God's family. But know this. Know that God calls two witnesses, this is the future, to powerfully preach the gospel during these days. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, it says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into, in the entire world. Now, throughout the history of, of God's people, that has been a challenge for us to take the message everywhere. But when that will be completely fulfilled will be during this time. And we know that will happen in a variety of different ways. The 144,000 witnesses, the Jewish probably evangelists that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. We saw even that heavenly messenger, an angel, is going throughout the entire world preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God. And then we have here two witnesses that will have such a powerful impact that it will be global. And it says that, that they will represent God dramatically during this time. Let's look at the text. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, I was really tempted today to, to come in sackcloth. You know? The closest I came to is I, came, I got to wear Levi's today. Okay, is that, is that, you know, sometimes we're always concerned about what people are wearing. It was interesting, you know, what, what, how would God dress his preachers back then? Or actually, what he's going to dress them in the future. He, he dressed them in clothing that would, would not be the, the normal expression of, of uh, maybe prophets or priests in terms of representing God and his royalty, but in their humility. And, and their awareness that it's the sin of people that drives the message that must be preached. And until we are forgiven, we are so far from God. And so they're dressed in sackcloth. And they're going to have a three-and-a-half-year period of preaching. And it says in verse 4, There are two olive trees and, and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so he describes in this way, these, these two that are his preachers, they're, they're like having a lampstand with the lamp on it. But if you had a lampstand, particularly if they were candles, how long would those candles last? I mean, there's, there's some long-lasting candles that you light that will last more than a few days, maybe a few minutes, but these, ha these have to last for three and a half years. In, in our day, they're not plugged into electricity, but they're plugged into olive oil. And this oil is what, what fuels this flame that presents light for all this period of time. And it's a representative of the Holy Spirit controlling them. And if anyone wants to harm them... The, the fire f flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. It's interesting. The, the word for witness, maybe you've heard this before, the, the word for witness in the Greek language, which is translated in every English Bible, is the word martyr. And they say, well, why don't we just put martyr in here? Well, be because they translated the word. Well, how did witness become what we know as martyr? Is because in the first century... Many, many of those who were representing Christ with verbal expressions of their faith lost their lives. So that word that simply means witness has the connotation, are you willing to put your life on the line for what you believe? But what's interesting here, these two martyrs or these two witnesses, they, at least in the first three and a half years, they're not the ones who are in grave danger. It's the people who were rejecting his message. And it says that, that fire comes out of their mouth to consume those 
who mock the message of these two who represent Christ. Now, I don't know if you're curious like me. Sometimes I wonder, well, okay, now if I'm supposed to kind of visualize what John saw, what did he actually see? I mean, just how bad a breath was the breath coming out of these people? I mean, they were so bad that they just all died when, you know, they gave these witnesses the wrong look, you know? Well, it's possible. I read a number of different people, and some of them say they're actual fire coming out of the mouth of these two who were preaching for Jesus. I, I, I would probably say, however, if you look how fire is used in the Old Testament and New Testament, it didn't have to come out of their mouth, but it could have been called down from their mouth. In Numbers uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it's interesting that all, all, the, all that it took for God to bring down fire from from heaven was not the rejection or the mocking of the message of, of God. It was simply this. It said this about in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. It said that the people began to complain like others had complained about the adversity that they were experiencing. And God's anger got kindled and he brought down fire from heaven to burn the outskirts of the camp. And I pause here just for a moment. Now, if, if that's all it took for God to bring down fire from heaven was to have some of his people complain about things being a little bit unpleasant in their life, how many of us would have would be qualified for a fire to come down in our lives sometime during our lives? Right? Did we ever fall into that complaining, whining, moaning, moaning type thing? But here was a much graver thing. They were mocking the message of the gospel. And it says that fire came out of their mouth. Now, James and John, remember that story with the sons of thunder? I mean, John is known as the, God, as the disciple of love, but he had a kind of a temper, and he saw some things happening that he didn't like, and so they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people? Now, it wasn't going to be fire coming out of their mouth, but they would pray a prayer that God's judgment would be descended. It's kind of like, lightning strike you know i don't know how god would do it but sometimes we wonder that i hope a lightning would strike when i'm sitting next to you all right is that I, I believe what happened here is that once they they had the the rebellion or rejection or the the anger of the people and they would not stop they were able to call down and the reason they called it down they realized that it was god is doing not themselves and fire consumed people who would reject the gospel verse six they also had power to shut up the sky and that, haunt, and that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they had power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth in every plague as often as they desired. These people, these two witnesses, probably most people think they're Moses and Elijah. And there's a variety of reasons why people think they were Moses and Elijah. One is because um, at the Mount of Transfiguration in, in Matthew 17, when they see the disciples, Peter, James, and John, the glory of Jesus, these two others are there, Moses and Elijah. You have Elijah, you know, represent the prophets, Moses representing the law. You have a variety of reasons why they think these two are, are Moses and Elijah. It doesn't really matter, but they are God's representatives. And in the midst of that, not only do they have the power to deal with those who specifically come against them, but they're able to impact uh, the, the water um, distribution upon the crops of the people in the land. They're, they're able to deal with things that will affect people's lives directly. And, and when bad things happen, either you're going to curse God or you're going to come to God and commit to God. And that's what happens here. Verse 7, 
when they have finished their, their testimony, after three and a half years, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This is the first use of the word beast in the book of Revelation. It's used actually 35 more times. I think it's 36 times in the book of Revelation. And it speaks about the one who is the Antichrist, the one who is the ruler. He gets his power from the evil one, from the abyss. And he, unlike anyone else who had come against these two witnesses, he is able to overwhelm and overcome them and put them to death. Now, at that point, it looks like who is winning, the good guys or the bad guys? The bad guys. And I'm sure those who initially began to think, well, maybe we're on the wrong side. If, if all this kept coming from these two people who, who spoke about God, spoke about his message, were representing him, and they were unable to be overwhelmed by anyone else, I, I would think people might think, well, maybe I'll switch sides here, right? But so many were so caught up in their own sin that they didn't want to do that. And then all of a sudden, the representative of the evil one comes, and he's able to overwhelm them. Well, they respond so, so enthusiastically when that happens. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where, where also their Lord was crucified. Speaking of Jerusalem, it had gotten so bad there. It was like Sodom. Sin was rampant. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. They were so angry at these two that they, they, they just kept them unburied and just out for everyone to mock them. And, and, and again, I'm sure they thought, we're on the winning side now. See, the, our leader has been able to overwhelm them. And so much so they, they begin to throw apart. Look at verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. You know, now we celebrate certain days. You know, there's, there's happy birthday, there's merry Christmas, and they added a third holiday, happy dead witnesses day. I mean, I mean what in the world? I mean, celebrating someone's death. But is this the end of the story? No, it's not. Look at verse 11. But, there, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching. I guess so, right? Can you imagine that whom you have mocked, they, those who have celebrated their death, those who have exchanged gifts and you're, and you're just enthusiasm over the loss of life of your enemy, all of a sudden they come back to life, and great fear overwhelmed them. And verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the clouds, and their enemies watched them. They're stunned. God announces for heaven that their life will be brought up into eternity in the place where God dwells. And, and then to... to, to finalize this and in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and they were terrified now again th there's not a period after the word terrified you know fear will do a number of different things i mean basically psychology will say you know fear will either call you to fight or take what take flight in, in spiritual terms fear will either cause you to run from God or run to God. 
It says they were terrified, and in the next phrase it says, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, I don't want to read too much in that phrase here, but I, I would say this. I think there's some in the midst of that crowd, in the midst of all they had experienced, and maybe for three and a half years, they thought they were on the wrong side, and then for three and a half days, they thought they were on the, on the right side. But after that three and a half days where God brings life to those who were dead on the street, some of them, probably the vast minority, the fear of the reality of what had just happened drove them to give glory to the true God. And so in the midst of being challenged, some of them received comfort. Because they turn to the one who in the very end still gives mercy. And then the commentary of John given to him, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. There's no way to read the book of Revelation, just even on its surface, not to be overwhelmed by the wrath and judgment of God that is coming, even before the final judgment. In the fifth trumpet, it says, this is the first woe. In the sixth trumpet, this is the second woe. And we still have one more woe to happen. One last point this morning. God wants us to know that he's measuring his people and those who are his as his own. Know that those who reject him will experience the judgment of God. Know that he'll call many witnesses, but particularly two in that day, to powerfully get out the message that people need to hear and respond to. And then fourthly, know that God's kingdom will come to this earth, his wrath will come, and his presence known. Real quickly, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so they see these last judgments that are about to come. They say, it's like it's already here, but now God has taken back everything that is his. This kingdom is now his, and he will reign fully forever and ever. Verse 16, And the 24 elders who are up in heaven, who sat on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That, that time that everyone was looking forward to is now coming to pass. In verse 18, and what's the response of the people here on the planet? By and large, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. There's coming a place where the, the good news and bad news will be lived out, and the bad news is judgment is coming for those who reject you. And the good news is, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There's kind of a time of judgment, and there's going to come a time of reward. And then verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. In the midst of God fully revealing himself to his people, he opens up the temple and the altar and the Holy of Holies and says, this is what you can look forward to. This is where my presence will be fully experienced. And the power surrounds all that is revealed about the presence of God. And I don't want to read too much in this, but let me just put it this way. If we're honest with each other, as we speak about believing that what's not only in this last book, but all the books in between, 
And, and we experience what we, we are promised, that there is one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Is that sometimes we say, well, yeah, where is that abundance? I mean, there are times I feel close to God, but sometimes I feel God is so far from me. Where's this fullness of the experience of, of having a relationship with the living God? And there are high moments in our walk with God, but there's some, at times some low moments as well. And then those times where we feel like God's just indifferent to us. And, and I guess I, w- I would put it this way. Sometimes we're, we're looking to experience the fullness of God before we're capable to experience the fullness of God. When we get to heaven, that's when we'll experience God fully. We experience him now, but, and we know in part, but then we will know in full. And the troubles and challenges of this world sometimes bring us down. And then we forget to remember that, that our joy is not found in what's happening, but the one who allows it to happen. That our peace is in Jehovah, in whom we fully trust and, and rest in. Our joy is in the Lord and, and not what does or does not happen in our life. And so this week, the, the challenge for us all is, is to be comforted and challenged. God's plan will come to pass. He will mark out his own. He will make it clear for those who are outside the court rebelling against him. He will come to that place where, again, his message will be proclaimed boldly and clearly. And the one who's coming to judge will judge, but he's also coming to those who know him and experience his presence fully. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, are, we are overwhelmed by that which you have declared and the part that we can understand we recognize that you are an almighty powerful God who will bring to pass that which you have said that you will bring to pass and that we want to fearfully and wonderfully and fully trust in you even when we don't understand why you're doing everything that you're doing other than that, that you have a plan and that we can put our trust in you if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, might they come to that point where they admit their need and turn from their sin to you? Believe in that Jesus Christ fully paid the penalty for their sins and rose again. And even now, commit to follow Jesus as their Lord and their God and their Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this morning.